0: The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Welcome to this edition of Century, Century of Lies. I'm glad you could be with us. My name is Dean Becker. Here in just a moment, we'll have on our guest for today, uh, Mr. Radley Balco, who's produced a report for the Cato Institute, talking about the abuses of the SWAT teams here in America. And a bit later, we'll hear from the Drug Truth Network reporters uh, with their in-depth look at the harms of this drug war. I think without any further ado. We're going to go ahead and bring in our guest, Mr. Radley Balco. Hello, sir.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Well, thank you so much. I, uh, I want to commend you on the uh, great deal of effort I'm sure went into producing this report. It's uh, uh, some 103 pages online here. And, and I think it's something we all should uh, take note of and perhaps learn from. Please uh, tell us about this report.
1: Uh, sure. the The report is um, it's basically uh, a uh, uh, lays out the the history uh, of uh, the SWAT teams and other paramilitary police units. Um, it documents their uh, increasing, uh, increasingly frequent use throughout the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, uh, spurred on, of course, by the drug war, uh, and in particular by. Um, The way Congress um, has has militarized the drug war by making um, surplus Pentagon equipment uh, available to local police departments um, basically for free or at very little cost. and so what we've seen is a dramatic increase in the number of SWAT teams across the country they're um, spilling over even to really small towns you know towns with 1500 2,000 you know up to 15 20,000 people um, and then we're seeing them deployed more frequently um, the uh, one estimate uh, the criminologist in Kentucky estimates that the uh, the number of SWAT callouts has increased from uh, about 3,000 in the early per year in the early 80s to uh, one than forty thousand per year uh, as of two thousand one, uh, and it's safe to assume that that number is quite a bit larger now. Um, so the paper uh, then goes into a critique uh, of SWAT teams and the problems of, of, uh, of paramilitary drug raids, uh, including knock, no-knock and uh, quick-knock raids. Uh, offers some legal background on where the sort of uh, legal landscape is on on a lot of these issues. Uh, and then it has a, a pretty extensive appendix, um, which is about half the paper, and uh, the the appendix documents. About 150 cases where these raids have gone wrong, uh, and innocent people have either been terrorized, injured, or uh, in some cases actually killed in these raids. Uh, others are, you know, nonviolent offenders have been killed, you know, recreational pot smokers, uh, police officers, bystanders, children, um, you know, the family pet uh, is often a casualty of these raids. Uh, and so the, the, you know, the paper. Um, Sort of documents. Uh, or the attempt was to make, do a sort of comprehensive overview of this issue, uh, and then offer some uh, some recommendations from reform, from, from the least likely to happen, which of course would be the, the, the legalization of drugs, uh, or legalization of the drugs that aren't legal now anyway, um, to more um, uh, minor uh, uh, suggestions, such as videotaping uh, every one of these raids, so that there's no um, dispute after the fact about whether or not you know. Police announce themselves, or how long they waited, or what happened once they were inside. Well, uh,
0: once again, we are speaking with uh, Mr. Radley Balco uh, with the uh, Cato Institute, sir. I, I want to ask you: We have seen, you know, uh, on TV the cops, the cops TV show where they do these raids. Uh, the seldom are they SWAT raids, but occasionally. But it shows the the lack of. I'm not going to say compassion, but the lack of uh, uh, simpatico between these officers and those they go after are, in essence, guilty till proven innocent many times, uh, even though many times they're at the wrong address or they find very little, if any, drugs during these raids. Uh, your, your thoughts, sir? I mean, I look at this. I, I want to point out to the listeners that uh, uh, this information is available online online. I have a link up at drugtruth.net net. we'll have uh, Radley give his uh, website here in a moment. But part of the uh, data being provided is a map which shows uh, various symbols for various problems uh, brought forward by these SWAT teams. I look at this map, uh, Radley, and I see it seems to be uh, west coast a uh, little bit, east coast pretty heavy, uh, and down in Texas uh, just uh, thick as flies. Um, Is this a question of police out of control uh, on a mission from God, so to speak?
1: There are a couple things he said in there that I think need to be addressed. Uh, One is I I would I would caution again to making any presumptions uh, about geography uh, from the map. The map is um, a survey of of cases that I found. You know, doing uh, some research of major news outlets. Um, I think there are. I think the map only represents... The map represents about 300 300 incidents. Uh, The paper has 150. But the map is a... a, I I think the map is a very, very small sample of of how often this actually happens and how often these raids go wrong. Um, It is... You got to understand that most of the time, when people are on the receiving end of these raids, um, they're frightened, they're embarrassed, uh, they're afraid to go to the media, and they're certainly not going to, you know, go to the police. Um, and so, I think a, a vast majority of these raids go unreported. And as I, I mentioned this in the paper, uh, we've seen that anytime there's been a, a high-profile uh, botched raid, for instance, the Alberta Spruill raid in New York City, uh, what ha- what we've seen is is the raid will get lots of media attention and there'll be lots of public outcry and once that happens then other people who have been victimized by these raids then feel safe to come forward and we see them come forward by the dozens Uh, so I'm guessing that this happens much more frequently than than what we read about in the newspaper. And of course, what we read about in the newspaper is disturbing enough. Um, but also, I think there's a you know there's a um, in in on the coasts and in major metropolitan areas, you also have more media outlets to report what's going on. And I think the media tends to be more um, you know skeptical of the police uh, and more uh willing to uh at least uh report uh on on what what's what's happened when somebody comes forward i think in in the south and the midwest and the west and rural areas uh you don't have as many media outlets to report on these situations um and uh what what outlets you do have i don't think are sympathetic to the victims of these raids um Also, the other thing I wanted to address that you said, you know, I mean, I I think there is uh, a lack of compassion uh, among the police officers who conduct these raids because... um you know, when you start talking about a drug war and you start throwing about throwing around war um, phraseology and, and symbolism uh, and then you start outfitting the, the police officers who, who do drug policing in battle gear and give them um, military-grade weapons and train them uh, with Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, uh, they start to think that they are soldiers and that this is a war. Uh, and so the people that they're, you know, they're fighting, uh, they're going to see them not as civilians who have rights, but as enemy combatants. And I, th- I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of these raids is that there's a, a certain dehumanizing of the people on the, the receiving end of them. And, you know, I don't blame necessarily the police office for this, the officers for this. I think what's happened is I think our politicians have created policies that have let this kind of mindset infiltrate our civilian police departments and have offered really... Uh, perverse incentives uh to to um, you know uh police chiefs and officers themselves um so i think the problem here i think you're right i think uh, there is a, a lack of compassion i think it's disturbing uh, and i think it's a reason why we see a lot of these excessive force issues uh and brutality issues uh, but i think that the problem chiefly lies with the policymakers and, and not with the officers themselves
0: well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I want to point the listeners to uh, page 10 of your report. There's a paragraph that begins the birth of, birth of SWAT, and it uh, indicates that uh, Daryl Gates, I think he's the man who said that drug users should be taken out and shot, uh, the quote uh, attributed to him. And he was, he's credited with basically starting up the uh, SWAT teams in the, early, uh, in the mid-1960s. Uh, to tell us about the advancement from that beginning and, and, and where we are now. Uh, and extrapolation of the figures.
1: Sure. Um, well, yeah. Gates Gates actually conceived of the SWAT teams originally um, as a uh, response to the uh, the Watts riots in the 1960s. Uh, and the SWATs were uh, the SWAT team was actually modeled after um, a police team that uh, uh, a nearby uh, city in California had put together to. Uh, um, put down the uh, the, farm, the Cesar Chavez farm uh, worker uprisings, uh, and Gates was very impressed with what uh, this police department had done, and so he decided to put together his own SWAT team, um, or his own t- uh, elite police team, to deal with uh, riots and, and hostage situations, uh, and he came up with the SWAT moniker. Interestingly, interestingly, it was he originally came up with uh, special weapons attack team, uh, and the city leaders loved the idea and they loved the tactics and they loved everything about it. They just didn't like the word attack, uh, so it was changed to special weapons uh, uh, and tactics. I think is what it was changed to, uh, but. You know the 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 mission of the team and the uh, the heavy power we- we- powered weaponry and all that. You know none of that changed. It was just a, the the name was all that changed. But even even so, I mean uh, the SWAT team through the SWAT teams throughout the nineteen the, the late '60s and then throughout the 1970s uh... were largely used for emergency situations uh... so in hostage takings uh... Um, bank robberies uh... riots uh... you know situations where somebody's life was in, in imminent risk and you know you ha- you had a suspect who you knew was presenting that risk um, By about 1980, uh, President Reagan uh, took office, and uh, in the early 80s, decided uh, to move forward on this particularly militaristic approach to the drug war. Uh, And, uh, you know, with a a willing and compliant Congress, uh, they... You know, it wasn't it, a big part of it was this Pentagon uh, surplus program where all this military equipment was given to these local police departments. But, you know, another part of it was just this whole war imagery and the fact that this was—you know—drug dealers weren't even uh, human; they were they were uh, combatants that you know needed to be vaporized, basically, uh, and so we. You get this, uh, you know, this striking war imagery uh, combined with this uh, militarization of the police departments, uh, and that's where you get these, uh, this pervasive uh, uh, use of SWAT teams. Um, you know, Gates' is, his quote is very famous where he, he talks about drug uh, users being taken out and shot. Of course, Gates, one of, somebody Gates' family later had a drug problem, and Gates had to sort of back down from that statement. Uh, but, you know, William Bennett, uh, the, uh, the the values are, I guess is always referred to. Yeah, uh, you know, Bennett has is, is publicly called for denying habeas corpus uh, to uh, to drug dealers, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the the, uh, the policies in place right now, we're we're not that far away from there. Um, but also, he called for uh, drug dealers to be publicly beheaded. Uh, so, you know, when you when you're throwing out language like that. Uh, I I don't think you can really, uh, we should be surprised when we see, uh, you know, a lot of the incidents that are described in the paper. Now, I
0: I want you to describe some of those incidents here in a minute. I I wanted to talk about, kind of tie into what you're you're saying, that the the Supreme Court has actually, in essence, declared a drug war exception to the Constitution, which which I think helps to lead us to these abuses. But please, tell us of some of the abuses, uh, the abuses you, you listed in the in your paper
1: uh oh geez where to begin i mean uh there's alberto Sepulveda, who was a uh, an 11 year old boy in modesto california who was a uh, shot in the head during a swat raid when an officer's gun accidentally went off um of course at the time the gun went off the, the kid was you know handcuffed on the floor face down on the floor uh at gunpoint um there's clayton hellriggle uh a 22-year-old kid in Ohio who lived in a farmhouse with some buddies, uh, you know, recreational pot smoker at worst, uh, an inexperienced SWAT team, you know, conducts a raid on the house late at night. Uh, Hellriggle comes down from his bed to see what's going on because, you know, he hears the explosions from the flash grenades and uh, the police you know fill him full of bullets uh he dies bleeding in the arms of one of his roommates um the police say he came down the stairs with a gun uh the roommates say he came down with a blue cup of water but you know whether he came down with a gun or not i think it's sort of irrelevant the idea is the problem is that you would bring a SWAT team in to raid a you know uh, as one guy in the house said it a uh, you know they brought down a house full of hippies um there's uh, you know there's uh, a case in um, Eugene Oregon where uh, this woman and man who uh, had a landscaping uh, uh, business actually he was a jeweler she was a landscaper Um, but they lived in a uh, sort of left of center kind of hippie neighborhood Uh, the police got it in their heads that these two were growing marijuana uh they weren't uh but a police officer pretended to be a a potential tenant toured the house saw some potting equipment uh which of course is part of the landscaping business uh saw uh, unusually high electric bills which of course was part of the jewelry business uh got a search warrant they bring a 50-member SWAT team with a tank, Holy cow. Um, raid these people first time in the morning. Uh, the women are, are roused out of bed naked, and not allowed to dress. Uh, when one woman asks if she can put on some clothes because she's embarrassed, uh, the SWAT team puts a black bag over her head and tightens it around her neck. Uh, fortunately, nobody was killed uh, in that situation, but, of course, they're, they're pursuing a lawsuit now. Uh, I mean the cases just go on and on and on um, in the course of researching the paper just just over a year and I've, I'm finding more cases every day I uh, found about 40 incidents where someone who was completely innocent uh, was killed in one of these raids uh, now you can Some people have quibbled with the way I've defined innocent. Uh, To me, if uh, the police raid the wrong address uh, and you come out with a gun because you think you're being invaded by criminals and you're then shot to death by the police... uh, I would consider you innocent um, because you weren't guilty of any crime and the raid was conducted on the wrong house. Uh, some people say that if you come out with a gun, somehow that makes you less innocent. But I, I think you have the right to defend your home when someone's there illegally, as the police are when they, they raid the wrong house. Um, so there are about 40 incidents of innocent people being killed. Uh, there are about, uh, another, uh, 20 to 25, uh, nonviolent offenders, uh, so that would include, you know, recreational pot smokers, small-time drug dealers, um there're another you know 15 to 20 cases of police officers uh who have been killed uh, i would say needlessly uh because you know when you conduct these types of raids you force confrontation uh and you create violence uh, you're not diffusing violence and you know so if you could apprehend a drug dealer as he's coming or leaving home um, I think you're much less likely to see a, a shootout than if you break kick his door down at three o'clock in the morning and wake him. Um, so in other cases, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, you have you have police. Um, so you know, the, I you know, I could I would just encourage people to read the paper. I, I can okay <laughs> I talk well, for several uh, hours about the different uh, the different case studies, but you know, they're all sort of blood turning.
0: Yeah, indeed they are. Uh, Radley, I, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh we are running out of time. Uh if folks want to learn more about this report Overkill and it it certainly uh, it, uh explains the uh, methods of overkill. Please tell them uh, where they can go on the web.
1: Uh it's up at the uh, the Cato Institute's website, so it's www.cato.org. That's c a t o.org. Uh in the raid uh, the map it's a pretty easy-to-remember address also. It's just uh, cato.org slash map, all one word, and, and you can look at the map for yourself.
0: Well, once again, we, we thank you, and uh, we'll certainly be using your stats uh, in the coming weeks to uh, further clarify this situation for our listeners. Thank you, Mr. Radley Balco.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: We will never be able to stop the drug trade. Currently, it's estimated that we stop 10% of the drugs coming to the United States. Let's say, what if we manage to stop more than 30% of the drugs coming into this country? At a minimum, it will only drive up the price of the remaining 70%, which, if you believe the police, will cause even more crime to purchase and control the more expensive drugs. So then if we stop 70% of the drugs, does anyone want to guess what that will do to the crime rate? Does anyone here believe that if we legalize drugs, that they would be more expensive? It is believe that approximately 80% of the crime associated with narcotics occurs in the distribution chain with dealers fighting for market control, stealing from others, and enforcing gang rules, etc. Cocaine and heroin, which are the drugs I believe the biggest, biggest threat to the health and welfare of our citizens, are cheaper, more available, and of higher potency than they were at the beginning of this war on drugs. So by that measure, we have already lost the war. According to the federally- Funded Monitoring Your Future Survey, marijuana has been universally available to American high school students for the last 28 years. So why do more than 900,000 teenagers sell drugs but not alcohol or cigarettes? Well, because alcohol and tobacco are regulated and sold through stores. Credible education as opposed to exaggerated claims actually works. Prohibition makes things worse. More availability, more violence, unidentifiable and possibly impure drugs that kill thousands of people a year and a system that exploits teens to enrich drug dealers. <clears throat> in researching recent FBI information on the number of police officers killed, I found that we have lost approximately 700 officers in the past 10 years, and 256, or approximately 36% of them, were killed by people with past drug law convictions. Last year, almost half of the officers murdered were by drug law offenders. The officers murdered by drug dealers did not have to die, and the thousands of other deaths related to appropriation to drugs did not have to happen. By legalizing drugs, regulating the purity and potency, licensing the sale, taxing the proceeds, and controlling the age of the person purchasing the drugs, we can greatly reduce the criminal gangs and their influence on our children. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off.
3: This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's corrupt cop story for the Drug Truth Network. Even though I've been gone a few weeks, the Krupp Cops certainly haven't gone away, and this week we have a doozy. In Norfolk, Massachusetts, a former Massachusetts State Patrol Sergeant was sentenced to 15 years in prison on July 12th after pleading guilty to one count of trafficking more than 200 grams of cocaine and one count of larceny of more than $250. He actually got off pretty easy. Sergeant Timothy White, who had worked at the Framingham State Police Barracks Narcotics Inspection Unit, had been stealing cocaine from the unit to sell and use. He and his wife and some of their friends had wild coke and sex parties, but White went down in flames in late 2002 when he assaulted his now former wife in the middle of a cocaine binge, and his troubles only deepened when police raiding his home a few months later found a pound of missing cocaine there. He's already been sentenced to two and a half years for the assault, and now he's got 15 more. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org
4: and now for another black perspective on the drug war do you remember the million man march i will never forget the pride i felt as i watched the largest gathering of black men this country has ever seen putting the lie to the stereotypes meeting peacefully purposefully proudly do you remember when the television cameras panned across the crowd the sea of black people that filled the Capitol Mall as far as the eye could see. They came seeking the nonviolent redress of their grievances the American way. One million black men. America's pride. Today, thanks to the war on drugs, there are one million black people behind bars in the prisons and jails of America. Though only 12% of drug users, black people make up 50% of drug possession arrests. Similarly, once arrested, they are more likely to be prosecuted. When prosecuted, they are more likely to be convicted. And when convicted, they are more likely to be sentenced to prison time and to serve much longer sentences than their white counterparts. And what is the cumulative result of the drug war and institutional racism at every level of the criminal justice system? Fully half of America's shamefully huge prison population is black. One million people. America's shame. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson.
1: The
5: sky is falling again. The National Association of Counties released yet another of its surveys on methamphetamine use earlier this week. NACO reports that according to its most recent opinion poll, nearly half of all county sheriffs believe that methamphetamine is their biggest drug problem. Eighteen percent of sheriffs believe that somewhere between half and all of their arrests are methamphetamine-related. The problem is that there is no data underlying these assertions. NACO's report is based on brief telephone surveys conducted by a professional polling organization measuring the opinion of 500 law enforcement officials in 44 states. While it's good to know their perspective, it's important to understand that opinion is all this survey measures. Even the Justice Department's top criminal justice researchers admit there is practically no solid data on methamphetamine use production and trafficking. There are anecdotes. There are enough anecdotes to cover several acres of farmland, but little solid data. What we do know is that survey and treatment numbers seem to indicate that methamphetamine use rates have held steady over the past few years, in spite of increased media and law enforcement emphasis on methamphetamine. We also know that the number of small mom-and-pop labs has dropped. What we don't know is whether that's because of anti-cold medicine laws or because of competition in the form of cheaper, higher-potency meth produced by Mexican gangs. And that's the law of unintended results in action. Historically, meth trafficking had been dominated by what are referred to as outlaw motorcycle gangs. Today, Mexican drug organizations are taking over the business. There are anecdotal reports of bloody gang warfare erupting as a result. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFact.org.
0: Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on
6: controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. On July 15th, Canadian soldiers seized an estimated $3 million worth of opium from a Taliban compound in southern Afghanistan. In the unequivocal words of Lieutenant Colonel Ian Hope, commander of the Canadian battle group in southern Afghanistan, quote, the Taliban is funded in large part by the opium trade, end quote. Afghan annual opium production has risen exponentially since the American invasion. According to DEA estimates, Afghan opium is a source of 92% of the world's heroin. The Bush administration, despite sternly warning Americans in 2001 that the drug trade funds international terrorism, has relied upon the illegal trade to finance its neoconservative agenda. The illegal drug trade is now Afghanistan's principal source of foreign investment and accounts for more than half of the Afghan economy. In Sussex, England, a woman was found guilty this week of selling heroin to a nine-year-old boy. The judge told her that, quote, selling Class A drugs to a small child is about as bad as it gets, end quote. Few would disagree, but I would add that the American neoconservative's shameful dependency on selling Afghanistan's bounty wholesale in the international black market is considerably worse. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network.
0: I want to thank uh, Radley Balco of the Cato Institute. I want to remind you that you can um, tune in to their report. Just go to drugtruth.net They're under cultural baggage on uh, 721 is a link to that report. Uh, here's something that came out yesterday on Democracy Now! very much similar to this. They took a look at torture and brutality in the U- U.S. and they found that for nearly two decades an area in Chicago's uh, city jails known as Area 2 was the epicenter for the systematic torture of dozens of african-american males by chicago police officers this drug war You know, it leads to all kinds of abuse, overcrowding, uh, inability to uh, uh, provide proper policing. Uh, Let's see. I want to welcome a new addition to the Drug Truth Network, WHOV, in Hampton, Virginia. And I want to alert you that next week on the Century of Lies show, our guest will be Dean Kuypers. He's the author of Burning Rainbow Farm. That's an incident that happened just a few days before 9-11 back in 2001 where Tom and Raleigh were uh, killed. By uh police forces. And then next week on the Cultural Baggage Show, our guest will be uh drug reform pioneer, Professor Arnold S. Trebek. He's the author of Fatal Distraction, the War on Drugs in the Age of Islamic Terror. Uh we've got just a couple of seconds left, and uh I, I want to invite you to please go to our website, endprohibition dot org. There you can uh, learn more. Uh, about what you can do to uh, help end this crazy drug war. And as always, I remind you uh, that there is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data involved. The drug war is a sham. We have been duped. The drug lords run both sides of the equation. Please do your part to help end this madness. Prohibido is stock y For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you examine our policy of drug prohibition the century of lies the show produced at the pacifica
6: studios of KPFT, houston